Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We are in chapter 14. We'll pick up there in just a moment after we have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Very interesting to consider this period in terms of type. The kings are anointed ones, which would be very plainly translated messiahs. Christ. How many, uh, how many true messiahs in Christ do we see versus how many anti-Christ, anti-messiahs do we see? I was, uh, I was doing some research for our, our midweek Lenten series, which I'm taking some of the slightly more obscure types of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and, and I was doing some research along the lines of the red heifer of, no, of uh, Numbers 19 for last night's homily. And you run into all kinds of nonsense, all kinds of nonsense. Modern, modern Jews who are still looking for the Messiah to come apparently are waiting for this red heifer to be born, and then they can, uh, they can take the ashes and cleanse the temple, and then the temple will come, and then the Messiah. Then you get all kinds of nonsense. But one of the nonsensical claims here was that um, the, uh, the Old Testament has nothing to say about the Antichrist at all, that this is a New Testament invention and that it has no Old Testament root or precedent. I mean, that struck me. When you hear these kinds of nonsensical claims, at first you kind of go, really? And then your mind goes like, well, maybe that's true. I don't remember an exact line that says anything about the Antichrist. And then you get to thinking about it for longer than 30 seconds, and you realize this entire period is (laughs) nothing but Antichrist after Antichrist after Antichrist. Again, in what sense? In the typological sense, where Christ simply means anointed one, Messiah simply means anointed one, and, and the kings are anointed. So you see all kinds of false anointed ones, all kinds of false Christs, and, and types of what the false Christ is going to be like. So they divide and they scatter God's people. They abuse God's people. They bring in pluralism, paying lip service to God while filling the lands with idolatry, uh, idols, and then closely connected to that, the fertility rituals, and, and then the, the temple cultists and prostitution, the sacrifice of children, uh, the celebration of um, uh, what we would call today kind of like um, androgyny or, um, uh, gosh, what what would it actually be? Um, Almost kind of this transgender type stuff like, yeah, you see all of this perversion. I mean, it all has its roots in, in these ancient uh, idolatries. Okay, so what do we, what, what, in other words, what do Christians take away from this other than this was a sinful mess, which is certainly a valid takeaway? Um, we can also take away types and forms of the Antichrist and his kingdom, what it looks like when, when Satan initiates his reign and rule, and how that manifests itself in various ways. And then we can see parallels globally and in our own country of, of, how, um, of how Satan is trying to rule and run things in our own day. All right, so with that in mind, then um, we can see how these also apply um, by, by way of contrast to Christ, the true king and the true Messiah. Now, we looked, we looked last week, we've seen the kingdom split now from, from Solomon. And of course, his son Rehoboam is reigning in the south, which is Judah and Benjamin, just called Judah because Benjamin's absorbed into Judah. And then we see that, again, as punishment for Solomon's turning over to idolatry and turning the country over to idolatry, uh, Jeroboam, not of his line, is reigning in the north. So the northern ten tribes are belonging to Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, of course, does equally, if not more wickedly, probably more wickedly, than Solomon does. And so the judgment of God finally comes against him. And you recall this from last week, uh, his son, Jeroboam's son, gets sick. And so Jeroboam says, hey, go, um, he says to his wife, hey, dress yourself in a disguise, go to the prophet and find out what's going to happen with our son. 
And so she does, and of course the prophet, we're told, I mean very dramatically, it's true, but very dramatically that he's also blind, you know, he can't see. In she walks and he instantly recognizes her on account of the word of the Lord, wife of Jeroboam, what brings you here? You know, and so not only does he pronounce that this ill uh, son of theirs is going to die, but that he's the only one in the line of Jeroboam who is going to be given um, a, a proper burial and that honor because something within him pleased the Lord. All the rest of the line of Jeroboam are going to come to a terrible end. And the language here that gets repeated as the curse of God against the unfaithful kings uh, is that the... Uh, How's it go? The dogs and the birds will feast on your offspring. They're, they won't receive proper burial. And um, yeah, you can see there the kind of the kind of imagery of of the dogs and birds with Gentile and and um, satanic imagery then imbued. All right. Well, what we saw then is, uh, this is pronounced for Jeroboam's line. I think, we, I think we left off maybe just short of the death of Jeroboam in verse 19. If not, it's, it's right around there. So that's where we may as well pick up. Um, but all Israel is going to be handed over. To, even though God gave the north to Jeroboam, Jeroboam has ruined that, turned his back on God. God's going to take it away and give it to another. So that'll take us up to verse 19. Did we do verse 17? Yeah, I think so. Good. Verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now that is not the biblical book, Chronicles. I want to clarify that. Um, you can drop down into the study note and go look again at pages 335 and following, um, where we see all the extra biblical books that the Bible mentions. And this is one of them. <coughs> Verse 20, and the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, so chapter 14, verse 20. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon reigned in Judah. So again, we're dropping down to the south, and this is kind of one of the challenges. I know it's a challenge for me, and if I mess up on this, you know, set me straight. I'm trying to keep the two kingdoms straight <laughs> as you go throughout, and which is king of which. Um, but we'll do our best here. Of course, Jeroboam is in the north, and so Nadab is in the north. Now we're jumping down to the south, and we're looking at Rehoboam in the south, the son of Solomon, who reigns in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Reference again to the temple. And again, what a great tragedy. All this transpires no sooner than the temple is there. It's like, it's like the devil attacks. You know, no sooner than the temple is established and God's presence is established and Solomon is faithful. Solomon turns against the Lord. Idolatry fills the land. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, it generally speaking, gets worse. I mean, there was, no, there was no real golden age in which the temple was there and everyone was uh, more or less orthodox and, and in, uh, you know, it, in keeping with the theology of Yahweh and the temple. There was no such time. So, uh, latter half of verse 21, his mother's name was... Uh, Nema or Nama, the Ammonite. This is an interesting aside and presents itself too as a fascinating kind of type. I know this gets exploited by the Roman Catholics. I'm not going there with it. But ever since Solomon, you see a mention of his mother. This, um, the, the queen mother figure emerges. And of course, she's the, a dowager or widow. And so you have this queen mother who has no husband and her son reigning. Now, now, what would that be a type of? It would very much be a type of Mary and Jesus. And so this sense of the, the queen mother and, um, and, and her son reigning. And so, so Mary fits this paradigm. And especially if you think of Mary in light of the iconography of Revelation 12, where, you know, again, she's Mary, but she's also the church. And she's got this 12 stars or this crown of 12 stars around her head. 
Okay, there's absolutely nothing wrong with seeing that type and imagery there. Zero. I mean, where, you, where, where it gets exploited and goes off the rails is, hey, therefore we should worship Mary, you know, this kind of thing. Therefore Mary is, um, you know, some sort of queen to whom we should appeal because, you know, she, just as, as, these, as these queens may have had great influence over their sons, maybe Mary has great influence over her son, maybe she can rein Jesus in a little for us, and we can go to Mary as our Savior and, and tender mother instead of Jesus, the harsh judge and warring king. And all of this gets developed into this kind of Roman Catholic piety, which should be noxious to us, should be noxious to any Christian. All right. So, getting rid of the exploitative aspects that lead us into false doctrine, uh, getting rid of the excesses of Rome that create a kind of Mariolatry, which, by the way, is very new. I mean, all of this in the church, they claim it goes all the way back. It doesn't go all the way back. I mean, this, the whole Mariolatry stuff is really ratified at, um, at the First Vatican Council. You're talking the 19th century. It's, it's brand new. I mean, the claim of the Roman Catholic Church to be ancient is ridiculous. Um, if you want to look at, if you want, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> this, is a, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, so bear with me. But the oldest denomination right now in the world is, uh, is the Lutheran denomination, because we predate the Council of Trent when the denomination of what is modern Roman Catholicism came about. Um, so the oldest denomination in the world right now is, is Lutheranism, is Book of Concord Lutheranism. Um, but all of that's ridiculous, of course, and halfway said tongue-in-cheek. The, the Lutheran claim goes back that we are the true small c Catholics. You can trace our theological line through the history of the church back to the scriptures. That's why all through the book of Concord we say, this is what God's word says, this is what the church fathers say, this is what we say. See how they all line up together? Yeah. The claim of Rome to be Catholic, small c Catholic, capital C Catholic, Catholic in whatever sense, is utterly false by a simple knowledge of history. They constantly are changing their doctrine and alienating themselves from the true Catholic tradition. All right? Fair enough. So there's my, there's my little rant on that so you know that I'm not in any way a Roman Catholic sympathizer, even while I point out to you that I think that this is a valid, fruitful, and interesting type. The queen mother that shows up first with Solomon, who is the original son of David, if you will, and then, and then the other kings that sit on the throne, this mention is made all of a sudden in this period of their mothers. The Lutheran Study Bible uh, handles this on uh, the note on chapter 14, verse 21. In the formula introducing the kings of Judah, not of Israel. And see the difference? I mean, technically Christ is the king of Judah. Properly speaking, of course, he's the king of Israel too, but you get my point. In the formula introducing the kings of Judah, not of Israel, the name of the queen mother is a regular feature. The part that Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, played in putting her son on the throne is a good example of the influence wielded by the dowager queens. Dowager essentially just means widow, I think. Okay, and now she happens to be an Ammonite, so this is one of Solomon's many foreign wives. So, <laughs> so that's not really a good thing. I mean, you know, you think of this as being... This goes back to the intermarriage being a bad thing, and the intermarriage being a bad thing because of the paganism that it brings in. And now, now who is the queen mother but a, but a pagan, you know, a, gen, a Gentile, an Ammonite? So this is, I think, I think in terms of the narrative, a, a sign that things have gone very much sideways or upside down, however you want to think of it. All right, well, um, did I skip too far ahead? I hope I didn't skip too far ahead. No, I didn't. Okay, so yeah, we're on, I mean, we went into verse 21, didn't we? I need more coffee. More sleep and more coffee. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Yeah, 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 and then the temple and put his name there. His mother's name was uh, Namar, Namah, the Ammonite. That's where we left off. Verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. Yikes. For they also built for them, although I kind of feel like there's a parallel of that in American cultures. Like we're on this whole thing of like how much, how much evil can we do, you know? Our fathers did this, they didn't go far enough, let's do that. And what's the next generation going to say? Well, we all hope the pendulum swings the other way. <laughs> we're sick of all these abominations, let's rein it in a little. But so far, uh, 
you can see kind of a parallel in how we've progressed culturally. Yeah, they did more, more evil than all their fathers had done. Verse 23, For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. Now that's probably an exaggeration, but that just shows how idolatry proliferates. It's like a virus. The thing just replicates over and over and to the point where, you know, even if this is a bit of hyperbole, it's like every hill you go on is dedicated to a false god. Every tree you're under is dedicated to some false god. Very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting, isn't it? The connection. Now, this goes much deeper than we have time for. But just to start here, the connection between worship and two, uh, and two locales, tree and hill. Yeah, and you can see kind of, a, kind of an anti-type emerging of the tree of the cross and the hill of Calgary or, Calvary or, or uh, uh, Golgotha. Yeah. Yeah, so you can even see that kind of anti-typology here where, um, by the way of, of negative, they're pointing us forward to the positive. The true worship and true redemption will be on the hill of, of Calvary, um, on the tree of the cross. So here in mockery and scorn of that, the devil and his, and his, false, uh, his false Christ, his antichrist, putting places of worship on every hill and every tree. Verse 24, and there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. Um, so obviously there's female cult prostitutes, but now here the males also, male cult prostitutes in the land. I think this is just showing the full defilement. Like to have female prostitutes would be the half defilement, you know, men being defiled. I mean, of course the women too, but that's not, it's just, I think it's viewed from the language, the imagery of their, their agents of the satanic idolatrous forces. And so men are being compromised. Now both sexes are being compromised, right? Now you have males as the agents of these idolatrous, satanic, dark forces. And um, so the whole, the whole of hum humanity, male and female, are being corrupted by this. I think that's the point there. So male cult prostitutes in the land, they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. I mean, the whole point of driving out is we're going to be different. We're going to be distinct. And what is, uh, what is Israel effectively done in, in very short time is they've made themselves just like everyone else. I'm sure there's a lesson in here, here also about the accommodation of the church to culture and how when you end up being just like the culture around you, you've, in the words of Jesus, you've lost your salt. <laughs> And how on earth are you ever going to be made salty again? You're not. You're fit to be trampled underfoot. You've lost that which makes you different. So that happens here to Israel as a nation. And then what sympathy does God have for them? If God was willing to throw out all the other nations because they were idolatrous and have them trampled underfoot and even, even exterminated, I mean, controversial to our ears, but we have to remember, God is God. Um, now, what claim does Israel have to be saved from that? No claim. They've merited the very same. In fact, if they've so tempted and tested God to the point that if he's just, he's going to have to treat Israel exactly as he treats the other pagan nations. That's the violation of the covenant, and that's exactly the the punishment levied upon a violation of his covenant. Now you're no, you're no different than all the other nations. You have to be treated as such. Um, if you drop down to, I just don't want to fly by these study notes without pointing out a few of them are interesting. The study note on verses 21 all the way through um, chapter 16, 28. This is, this is helpful just in terms of understanding the structure of what's going on. From the division of the kingdom and the first king of Israel, the account returns to the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and two of his successors, Abijam and Asa. So in other words, we're going to kind of, and we're going to see this, but we're going to kind of follow the line of Solomon Rehoboam, you know, in Judah, 
and then we're kind of going to bounce back in time and grab hold of the, the you know, the Jeroboam kings of the north line. And so, I think it's a helpful note just to point that, uh, that out that that's what's going on. And the note continues, in order to synchronize the history of the two kingdoms, the author of First Kings then resumes the story of five kings who ruled in the north. So you have this difficulty. You're trying to tell two different narratives, right? You're trying to do this in a way that doesn't drive your reader nuts. And so from time to time, that means you're going to go down one street and then all the way back up and start going down the, the other street in parallel fashion. All right, so that's what's happening. So we are, um, again, we're on the line of Solomon Rehoboam. We just finished verse 24, so on to verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Not the golden shields. Remember those? <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> and King Rehoboam, this is sad. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Uh, this, is a, this is a great type of what happens in the church um, when, we, when we go from shields of gold to shields of bronze <laughs> because of capitulation. All right, and he committed them into the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. So everything's getting worse, going from gold to bronze here. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back into the guardroom. Yeah, and this is going to start to be tribute. Uh, um, so instead of, being, instead of being like the superpower to which all the nations are coming for wisdom and there's trade with all the nations and all the nations are enriching, what's happening now? All the nations are starting to suck wealth out, you know, by conquest or by tribute or whatever it is, by necessary political militaristic alliance, like all the wealth starting to go out. Yeah, I skipped over this. If you look with me, I mean, this will backtrack a little, but I think it's just worth mentioning. If you, um, if you look at the study note on 24 in regard to the, to the prostitutes that we talked about in the previous section, sacred prostitution, <laughs> what a phrase. <laughs> Both female and male played a prominent part in Baal worship. His devotees expected these abominations to have the power of sympathetic magic, automatically putting the deity under a spell to produce fertility in human beings, herds, and crops. So, I mean, that's the religious basis of, of the prostitution is in the, in the copulative act, if you will. Um, this inspires the gods to thus be fertile. And, and yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's pretty easy to see how a guy could sit around and invent this. You know, hey, how, how can I get away with prostitution? I know. Let's make it into a religion. Yeah. Let's turn this into a righteousness. I suppose in a perverted way, though, we still see that today, don't we? That, that sexual immorality and idolatry and all other manner of sins, of course, those are just in the forefront here, so I bring them up. Um, but it's not, enough, it's not enough that they be done. It's that they have to be celebrated as virtues. Yeah, isn't that true? They have to be turned into a religion. Some things never change, I suppose. All right, uh, so things are not going well for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. And just that fast, the wealth of his father that came in is flying out. Verse 29, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Again, we don't have this book. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So there's the continually. So what do you have here? You have um, two bad kings uh, leading the two sides of God's people in civil war. It's just, it's just terrible. It just couldn't be worse. And you've got, you know, idolatry filling the land. Verse 31, And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama or Nama the Ammonite. So again, there's reference there. And Abijam, his son, 
reigned in his place. Um, so what else do you have here? And I'm sorry, I kind of skipped over this too. I don't know, I'm a little disjointed today, I guess. But um, I, did, I should have mentioned Shishak and the king of Egypt. You know, of course, they were, they were slaves to Egypt and God set them free from Egypt and now they're starting to go into slavery to Egypt again. So you can see the kind of reversal of the, I mean, again, it's, it's typological, it's, it's a little bit analogical, but um, a kind of a kind of hinting at the reversal, the, the backsliding, the de-evolution of God's people here. Um, if you look at the study note in regard to the fifth year and, and Shishak, that's the study note on verse 25. The fifth year is 927 BC. That just orients us. Um, Shishak, this is uh, an account of Egyptian evasion. It's the only incident recorded for Rehoboam's reign intentionally follows description of abominations that provoke the Lord to jealousy. The Karnak inscription describes the events. One later tradition has Shishak removing the Ark of the Covenant at this time and taking it to Egypt or Ethiopia. However, the texts make no mention of this. So, as... Uh, I mean, as Israel, as God led Israel outside of the rule of Egypt, and you remember the Egyptians enriching Israel on their way out. Now, what is this little event a, a kind of type and sign of? A reversal of that. Yeah, now suddenly they're under the authority of Egypt again, or under the threat of Egypt again, and now they're enriching Egypt. So in this one can see sort of an image of how badly they've broken the covenant of God. And so God sort of like reverses that in, in a, I mean, albeit in a sort of picturesque way, an iconic kind of way here. All right, so we have Abijam, grandson of Solomon, come into reign. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, of course, Jeroboam's in the north, so we're constantly getting this cross-referencing here, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. Once again, his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of uh, Ibishalom, or Abishalom, Abishalom maybe. And yeah, this is a variant spelling of Absalom. Uh, this is very interesting. I didn't do any detailed research here. If I was preaching on this, I sure would, because it's fascinating. Because Makkah is a name that is, uh, of, is of Saul's line, isn't it? And then interesting, and of course, Saul's kind of an enemy. And then, um, and then Makkah has an interesting, interesting relationship with David. And then you have, um, uh, yeah, the study note points this out, that Abishalom is a variant spelling of Absalom. So you've got to really, again, if I was going to preach this, you've got some really interesting stuff going on there just with those two names and with the sort of history and theology that those names conjure up. And be that as it may, more superficially, you just see once again this sort of queen mother figure uh, recorded in Scripture. Um, Abijam's mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of uh, Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. All right, so, you know, very interesting. These temporal blessings are coming to the line of David on account of David's righteousness. It's just very, very interesting. I think we would... Um, I think today we would recoil against that idea, and we probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't. Um, might, might the goodness of, of a father um, bring about temporal blessings upon his progeny? 
It's, it certainly does here. It certainly does here. You can't, that's exactly what the text says. Might that be a way that God works more generally? I think it might. I think that there's um, quite a bit that could be said about this, even in the, um, the close of the commandments, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, punishing the sins of the chil- uh, punishing their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You see some of that kind of bearing out here. And um, you, see, you see a mercy being given to, um, to Abijam and to his son. That's this business about the lamp. It's really referring to his son. Um, Nevertheless, for David's sake, not for his own sake, but for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son soon after him. So that's just kind of what the lamp means. And establishing Jerusalem. Jerusalem will continue to be the seat of the king. But again, all of this because of what David had done. Obviously, the exception of Uriah the Hittite. You just answered it. I was wondering what establishing Jerusalem meant. So setting it up as the capital or headquarters. Yeah, Yeah, it continues. Mm Mm-hmm. You, uh, it's a, and it's a really good question because you get the, uh, I mean, God can put, God can put his, uh, God obviously has his temple there, yeah. Yeah, and he's got the king's seat there. I mean, God could do whatever he wants at any time, and Jerusalem hasn't, hasn't really shown itself to be any better than the rest of the, the rest of the nation. Why does God hold to it? And I think what's kind of lurking there is this, this messianic promise and proclamation of the, the true son of David coming to uh, reign, in, reign in Jerusalem. Wasn't it Absalom who, or uh, not Absalom, not Absalom. Um, wasn't it Solomon who got on the donkey as, and um, rode the donkey as part of his, uh, or was that somebody else? I can't remember. Oh, who was that? Because we talked about that typology. Well, anyway, be that as it may, um, what one sees in the background here is is the the messianic promises ultimately to be fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus as the true King, Jesus Himself as the new temple taking place, and you start to see these themes woven together. I just tried to grab at whoever, whichever King it was that rode on the donkey. Uh, but that's a type of Christ entering on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And if you pay attention to the kingly language and the kingly imagery in the Gospels, but then especially up into Holy Week, you'll start to see it everywhere. You'll start to see these Old Testament connections and ties and God fulfilling all of these, all of these promises that he upheld. I mean, of course, you see this so prominently in uh, Matthew's Gospel, even at the very beginning. Remember, um, how, how frequently in that little section Matthew calls Herod the king, juxtaposing that with the birth of this child who is to be king, yeah. who is the true king of God's people. And then culminating, as I said, in the riding of the donkey and the palm branches as he goes into Jerusalem. And then, of course, you know they, they mock him as, uh, as king of the Jews, putting a crown of thorns on his head and slapping him, putting the purple robe around him. I mean, and then, and then, of course, crucifying him. They say this is the king of the Jews above him. So this idea of Christ, the king of the Jews, coming into Jerusalem, and then you got the temple side of that and the king side of that, sort of the two kingdoms side of that, and Christ fulfilling both. It really factors huge in the Gospels and huge in, in what occurs in our Lord's coming and in his passion. So anyway, I just, I just bring that up here because that's really kind of what's in the background of, uh, of God keeping this, of God keeping Jerusalem as, as the place of his throne. And, and he's kept it to this day. I mean, it's, it's still, you know. Yeah, Jerusalem is still there in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, you have St. Paul take this very controversially, and probably it does us to, uh, I mean, imagine how this must have sounded to first century Jews who have the temple um, prior to its destruction in 70. I mean, there it stands, and as the crown jewel of Jerusalem. And what does Paul talk about? He talks about Jerusalem below versus Jerusalem above. You remember this? I think he does this in Galatians. Um, but he makes this whole theology of, of earthly Jerusalem as this fallen, legalistic place, this, this sl- enslaved place, this, this image of Hagar. 
and the Jerusalem above being this image of Sarah and this free uh, city from above. And then, of course, in of course in John's revelation, then what do you have as the climax? You have Jerusalem from above descending. So you've got this you've got this kind of contrast of like earthly worldly Jerusalem, earthly worldly temple. Um, meets its final judgment. And of course, that's manifest in 70 AD when it's destroyed. And what remains is Jerusalem below, a shell, a reminder of of what could never be and what God himself must bring and install via the new Jerusalem. So yeah, interesting to just see how the apostles take that and um, then how we can think of it. Okay, let's see. We got Makkah, daughter of Absalom. How far did we get? Six. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what would I do without you guys keeping track for me? Well, you found out when we were shut down for quarantine there those times, and it's like anybody's guess. I think I reread entire chapters from time to time. <laughs> All right. Verse six. Um, where are you? There you are. Now there was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Um, these, are the, these are the households. Obviously, we're talking about Abijam. So, in other words, the civil war continues. I think that's how we ought to take that. Verse 7, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. Yeah, so... I mean, if that seemed like a very short reign, it's because it was. The study note on um, verses 1 through 8 says, Rehoboam's son, Abijam, reigns for only three years. It's still long enough for him to ruin everything and <laughs> you know, continue the sins of his father, but that's it. That was a three-year reign. Okay, finally, finally, we get some bright light here. Asa reigned in his place. Verse 9, in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. Okay, so same mother. And Asa did what was right in the side, in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, God be praised. Finally, a good king. We haven't had a good king really since David. I mean, Solomon arguably. Uh, but, yeah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. I mean, you have to, like, you have to wonder what that actually looked like. That must have been incredible. That must have been incredible. And if you were part of the faithful remnant, how much rejoicing would there be that he's finally, at least in some way, shape, or form, cleaning house here? You also see what our Lord Jesus says. You even see in a nascent way um, how family is dramatically redefined by faith. Because his earthly fathers, his earthly family, had brought in all this idolatry. He rejects that in favor of being family with God and family members with Yahweh. And so even here you can see like the root and origin of what Jesus will later preach manifest that my brothers and my mother and sister and brothers are those who do the will of my father, you know, not, not fleshly connections. Or as we heard recently, maybe even just this last Sunday, I can't remember. Remember the woman who, yeah, it was this last Sunday. The woman says, blessed is the woman from whom you nursed kind of thing. And, um, and Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly this theology here. So he rejects what his fathers, what his earthly family had done, and um, sides himself on, on, God, on the side of God's family, removes the male cult prostitutes, removes the idols his father had made. Verse 13, he also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image after Asherah. Now, of all the heroic deeds recorded in Scripture, this has to be amongst the greatest. I'm not joking. I'm not joking at all. This, the most understated and yet the greatest, who literally, literally would do this to their own mother. 
but someone who has, who has radically allied himself with Yahweh over and against even the most intimate fleshly, earthly connections. Yeah, well, we're not supposed to honor father and mother when they do contrary to our heavenly father. Yeah, we must. Here's an example of an exception to that commandment where we obey God and not man. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds like it sounds like it's the title, but also her position of power. I am, I imagine she just has to go off on her own. You know, I mean, he may not throw her out on the street, kind of thing. I doubt that, but she's removed from this position of influence. Yeah. Yeah, removed. I don't know that the study note shares any more information on that. I don't think so. Now, the abominable image, this is an interesting thing that the study note brings up. The Hebrew root means to shudder, denotes an idol that produced horror because of its ugliness or obscene representation. Mom, we're going to have to take down your pornographic art, and you've lost your position. Yeah, this is... Uh, I mean, it's quite understated, and it doesn't seem like much, but if you actually think of the psychological dynamics, even if you think of the power structure dynamics, she was the queen mother when his predecessor reigned. And this is a big move. He's doing, he's doing big stuff. This, it may all be very understated, and it may all be um, almost eclipsed by the wickedness that surrounds it, but Asa's kind of the man. He's great. And God's gracious to him. We're going to see this. We're going to see that, it's, that reform is always messy. I take great, great comfort in what, what follows this. Yeah, Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Of course, the brook Kidron is one of these geographically heavy, heavy theologically laden places. You know, it's a place of great significance theologically. Factors into our Lord's passion. All right, um, but the high places were not taken away. Okay, so this is, the, this is the line I take comfort in. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Why do I take comfort in that? Well, I'm sure my sinful nature takes comfort in that because it wants to have an out, you know. But, <laughs> but aside from that, why, why do I take comfort in this? Because reform takes time, and reform takes, and you can't always get all the reforms you want. And if you, if you go in just, you know, swinging your axe, you're likely to just, Get yourself chopped off, and eventually you're not going to be able to do anything anyway. So what I like about this is, is Asa, um, indeed, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his, father David done, he, uh, as his father David had done. He didn't get the job finished. I'm sure he would have liked to. Um, God has mercy on him, and, and look at how, how the Holy Spirit speaks of him. You know, hey, he didn't do this one thing, but nonetheless, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So I take, you know, those of us who would... Uh, really desire to have a positive impact in, in the life of the church, in the life of our families. You know, there's a recognition we maybe can't get everything done, but um, that's okay. Be faithful anyway, and uh, God will bless you and be gracious to you. Okay, so the high places weren't taken away, verse 14. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And so again, when we're just paying attention to what's happening to the, to the riches, um, under, under wicked uh, Rehoboam, um, they're, they're going out. And now under godly Asa, they're coming in. This is very much, again, like the root of our Lord's words, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Albeit we're in a different category and there's some ways in which those things are distinct, but look at this. Um, they're unfaithful and out goes, the, out goes the material stuff. They're faithful and in goes the material stuff. I mean, now this is, where might this be abused in some sort of prosperity gospel type thing? Well, we're not going there. Um, we don't have any reason to go there. But we see that, that Asa sets his heart not on wealth and riches, but on being faithful to Yahweh, and Yahweh adds these things unto him. I think that's the parallel. Christ enjoins us to seek righteousness, not mammon, not the worries and cares of this earth, but to seek the, his righteousness. And in seeking that, he'll ensure that we have what we need to get by. So, yes? Asa is in the line of uh, David, yes. David. Not, is he the 
No, oh, no, no, no. So, yeah, is that what it said? I know it says that, yeah, 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 as David, his father, had done. No, that's just a way of speaking. It's an idiom. So, yeah, it, yeah, I can't, I, I forget how many generations, like a great-great-grandpa or something like that. Yeah. It's David, yeah, in reality, yeah. So just to call, yeah, but it, that's just a biblical idiom and way of speaking. Sometimes they'll skip those generations and just, if you're in the line, he's your father. Yeah. And he said, um, sometimes the progeny are blessed because of... Yeah, here's a temporal blessing given to the progeny on account of David. Yeah, yeah back in the early part of chapter 15. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's still true today? Yes. Yes, I do. I think that the Lord can do whatever He wants. Yeah. And, um, and so, I mean, I don't think we should make it some sort of axiomatic type thing that we hold God to, but I think we, we severely underplay and distort this in, in, in maybe Lutheran, like 21st century Lutheranism, late 20th century Lutheranism. We're, we're just so afraid of this concept of merit and so afraid of falling back into Rome, we fall into this opposite error. And the Bible's really good at like rebalancing that and putting us out of the reactive error we've fallen into. I think it's a, it's a, isn't it a profoundly great motivation to think to yourself, um, in honoring the Lord and doing what's right in His sight, He might not only bless me, but my progeny? I mean, and here's an example of the Lord doing that very thing. So I don't know why on earth it would ever be wrong for a Christian to think that. Like, wouldn't it be great if I could live in such a way that, that I please the Lord so much that, that, that the, that the blessings he gave to me redound upon my children, even if they're unfaithful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see anything. I just, I don't, I don't have heartburn over that. I don't, I know a lot of folks do, but I kind of like it. It's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so, so what we have here is we have temporal blessings. We don't say David, because of David's faith, David was saved, and so is, I forget who we're talking about here, Abijam, right? No, there's no, there's no transfer of salvation. Unbelievers don't get saved on account of someone else's faith. So that statement, God doesn't have grandchildren, understood that way is, is right. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about temporal blessings here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can, I mean, we can do all of this theology without falling into Rome's treasury of the saints and this whole meritorious view that then includes, of necessity, purgatory. I mean, we... We can avoid all of that without getting so reactive that we reject the plain text of Scripture. And we can just come right back to God's Word and right back to the middle and not be that drunken monk falling off his donkey into one error or the other. And I think we can... um, You know, the other thing that this is an antidote to is, is we have such a hard time in our lives seeing any meaning or purpose because it all seems like a waste. It all seems like spitting in the wind. I mean, especially in this day and age, it's like, if you're trying to do things right in the right-hand kingdom, in the ecclesiastical sphere, you feel like you're spitting in the wind. I mean, you feel like you you can push as hard as you want your entire life and you're going to do precious little good except for a very few people maybe around you. And then you, and then if you think in the, in the civil sphere, it's like the same way. If you're trying to push against the tide of the way our culture is going, like get prepared to lose and be demoralized. And then you, you, know, you kind of just sit there and you go in the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom. It's like, I can't do anything but lose. Uh, that's just how you feel. You know? It may not be true. It's probably somewhat the delusion of the devil to think that way. But um, you, know, you just get to this point where you kind of go, you kind of go it's all spitting in the wind. It's all, it's all meaningless. And then a verse like this is really, fill, like really fills you with comfort and hope and promise then to see that, well, it's not meaningless in God's eyes. And you say, well, I'm already blessed. I don't need any more blessings. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, well, what about your children? You know, and, and what, you, what you live and what you do and how you please the Lord might actually redound upon your children, might actually um, grant them blessing and benefit? I don't know. To me, that, fills, that, 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 is a, that is a word of God that fills life with meaning, with purpose, and with, hey, um, A, I can please God, and B, I can please Him in such a way that He blesses not only me but my children. Sign me up. Great. Yeah, that's a great thing. So I think, um, I think the more of these uh, 
blessings and promises of Scripture we can grab a hold of in this dark age, uh, the better we are. Okay, so Asa, bright light in the middle of darkness. The heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And then he starts bringing in the wealth. So, um, you know, in this narrative at least, not to put too much into it, you kind of have the, the wealth going in the kingdom or out of the kingdom as a little bit of a, a thermometer um, showing you what's going on there in terms of the spiritual well-being. Verse 16, and there was war between Asa and Basha. Now, Basha is a few lines down, like a few kings down on the Israel side. So we're going to backtrack and get that here in a minute. But you can see the difficulty in telling this narrative. So you've got to bring up Asa, who's on the good side, and his rival, uh, Basha. Now, um, I think it's Basha, yeah. You don't have to read too much into this, but when he's a bad guy and he's got a name like this, you may as well. Um, so Basha, you can see there in the, B, the B-A-A, it's the first three letters of Baal, you know, Baal, this false god. And so he is, um, he's truly a king after the heart of this false god. He's a bad guy. So verse 16, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to, to Asa, king of Judah. So this is a strategic fortified city meant to kind of function as a, as a I, I don't know, so much of a blockade, but isolating, isolating Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into his hands of his servants. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I kind of like this just isolated as a type because it's Christ taking the treasuries of heaven and giving them to us. But, um, you know, granted, it's a little fanciful, but I still like it. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. So what, is he, what has just happened? He's turned up one of Israel's allies into an enemy. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa, sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Chinneroth, with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah, none was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building. <laughs> and with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Aesop, all his might and all that he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. All right, an interesting exchange here. I really, this is a data point that's profoundly interesting in, in kind of a, a much broader question in wrestling you have to have. At various times in, um, in the narrative of uh, the Old Testament kings, to reach out to a pagan and sort of employ their services over and against your enemy is seen as a faithless act, um, an act of not relying upon God. Here, though, that's not the case. Here, that, this is recorded, of, I mean, this is Asa who does everything right in the eyes of the Lord, and it's simply recorded as being shrewd. And um, using what was at his disposal, 
for the good and benefit of his kingdom, which is really the kingdom of God here, typified because you've got uh, you know, Yahweh worship um, increasing, idolatrous worship decreasing, and he uses the money, um, he uses the riches in order to secure that kingdom. It's a shrewd use of money. It's putting money in service to God's kingdom. Um, it's putting one's enemy in service of God's kingdom. You know, this king of Syria, um, putting one's enemy in service of God's kingdom to, to put an end to the immediate attack which is coming from Israel. So all of this is presented really rather shrewdly. And uh, it's just interesting that in some cases it's shrewd and godly. In other cases it's faithless. I suppose at the root of that is God's own judgment, God's own knowledge of what's going on in the, in the hearts of the kings, the hearts of the leaders. But that's what we have here. So Asa, the end of Asa's story is, um, is good. It's a, he's a heroic figure in an otherwise pretty bleak landscape. Okay, so quiz time. Do you know all the kings in the line of Rehoboam? Yeah, me either. I'd have to sit there and relook at them all. Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, I think. I think. Who knows if I missed one in there? Let me know if I did. All right, verse 25. That's going to get harder as we go. All right, uh, verse 25, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. Okay, so we're back in Israel. We're back in the line of Jeroboam. And we've also backtracked in terms of chronology or time. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of King Asa. See, so we've just backtracked a little bit, but Asa reigned quite some time. So the second year of King Asa, or Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. There's a short reign. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and his sin which he made Israel to sin. So that's obviously Jeroboam. Jeroboam was given the kingdom, the northern kingdom by the Lord, but turned against the Lord in idolatry. Nadab follows suit. Then we get to Basha who uh, we've already heard about. And they're dropping down to the study note on 1527. You can see what I mentioned just a moment ago. Baal hears. That's what Basha means. So you have a, the king of Israel, <laughs> named after a false god. Basha usurped the throne and brought an end to Jeroboam's house. So that's what we're going to read about here. He... Um, during the two centuries of its existence, Israel was ruled by 19 kings, representing nine different dynasties. Conspiracies and regicides were responsible for the frequent changes in ruling houses, of which none lasted longer than four generations. Jeroboam was succeeded only by his son. Yeah, so that's pretty telling just about the chaos of the north and how, how one dynasty supplants another. And generally speaking, it's, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And we're certainly going to see that here with uh, Bashah. So Bashah, verse 27, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar conspired against him, him being Nadab. And Bashah struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Bashah killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And that's exactly where we started today. Um, the proclamation of the prophet that Jeroboam's whole line would be destroyed, and now here it is. Do you have a comment or no? I'm just going to say uh, these names. Basha's father was the son of Jeroboam who, who died when he went, the mother went back into the house, right? So he was fatherless. 
Okay, sorry, you got to run that by me one more time. <laughs> one more time. 1527. Basha, 1527. His father was the. I, oh. Back up in 14. I don't know if that's the same Ahijah. Oh. Okay. I don't. I suspect it's not. Okay. I suspect right. it's not. Yeah, Ahijah is a common enough name. That's a that's a good question though. If anybody sees anything to the contrary, let me know. But I don't think that's the same Ahijah. Yes, yes. In fact, yeah. Yeah, the Ahijah back in 14, like 4, where she goes to Shiloh to come to the house of Ahijah. Yeah, he, um, he died in 14.12. Yeah, okay. The said, go back and as soon as you enter the city, your child shall die. So. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that that's the same Ahijah. If you find out conclusively otherwise, let me know, but I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, whoever his father was named, you know, whoever Ahijah, this Ahijah was, named him Basha. So, yeah. you know, kind of like if you named your son Satan. <laughs> all right, well. Okay, so yeah, Basha, Basha cleans house on, oh, I'm sorry, we're two minutes over. Oh, somebody's got to set an alarm for me. I got too into this narrative. All right, let's pick up. Let's pick up. Um, we'll just clean things up next week with um, Basha taking over and, and fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord against Jeroboam. And then we'll, uh, looks like we'll read a little bit more about Basha and um, what happens up north in Israel. The Lord be with you.